Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about health care issues. We have a two-part program today. And during the first half of our program, joining us by phone from uh, Indianapolis is going to be uh, Seema Verma, who is the owner of Seema Verma Consulting. And in her consulting role, she is focused on government health care Consulting and served as the lead consultant to the state of Indiana and the development of the Healthy Indiana program. Uh, she's actually pinch hitting for Mitchell Robe, the Family and Social Services Administration Secretary from Indiana, who we've been promoting, was going to be on the show, but he was uh, called away at the last minute for an emergency and, and uh, had to, to cancel out on us. But we're delighted to have uh, Seema with us. And then on the second half of the program, we'll have Rob Stone, a Bloomington physician who is the director of Hoosiers for a Common Sense Health Plan and also the state coordinator for Physicians for a National Health Program. If you have questions or comments today, please phone us at 855 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Seema, thank you for being here. That was a long introduction. My pleasure. Glad to be with you today. Good. Thanks for being here with us. And Mary Catherine, good to see you. Hi, Bob. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, your work with the state and the Healthy Indiana program. Could you sort of give us an overview? Sure. I'll tell you what, it was one of the, the most, probably the most exciting uh, projects that I've, that I've done in my years of, of health care. Um, it was really neat to see for the first time sort of a bipartisan support of a program to help the uninsured. In Indiana, we're one of the lowest coverage states, or we used to be before the Healthy Indiana Plan in terms of um, coverage for the low-income uninsured. We, before the uh, Healthy Indiana Plan, we were covering adults or parents actually below 22% of poverty. And uh, we were probably in the uh, bottom five for all states in terms of our government programs for the low-income uninsured. So I think it was a, a tremendous effort on the part of um, the governor, Governor Mitch Daniels, Mitch Robe, and Senator Miller, and, and uh, Representative um, Charlie Brown to come to really show a lot of leadership to address this problem. And the Healthy Indiana Plan is essentially a program for low-income uninsured Hoosiers below 200% of poverty. And essentially what that means is um, it provides coverage for folks or for a family of four at about $40,000 a year. All right. So what, what's all covered in the plan? Is it, is it like a traditional um health insurance program? It does. Our goal was to make this look more like what a person would find in the commercial market. It covers um, a range of services um, and very comprehensive coverage in terms of your hospitalizations, um, prescriptions, hospital services, as well as physician um, services as well. The the thing that makes the Healthy Indiana Plan unique is that it's not um, a traditional Medicaid program, and I think what it does is it provides the health insurance in the form of a high-deductible health plan. Um, Critics will say that high-deductible health plans um, don't work for low-income populations, but I think the way we structure the Healthy Indiana Plan, it actually provides a lot of incentives for individuals to focus on their health and promote prevention. Individuals are required to make contributions into a health savings type account, which we call the power account. They make contributions, and then the state also makes contributions into this account to make sure that they have enough money to cover the deductible. The deductible is $1,100, and once they hit that deductible, um, they have coverage for up to $300,000 a year or $1 million over their lifetime. So they need to amass the $1,100 each year then? Is there any carryover? Yeah, well, what happens at the end of the year is that if you have any carryover, and um, you have completed all your requisite preventative health services. You know, for a woman, it could be a mammogram. For a gentleman, it's colonoscopy, sort of those routine preventative services. And if you've done that, all the money in your account will roll over to the next year, and that reduces what you owe in the second year. Now, if you haven't completed those services, only your contribution will roll over, and the state's contribution will not roll over. What about co-pays? There are no co-pays in the program except for non-emergency use of um, the emergency room. Okay, so, so once you're... you pay that power account, you're done. Okay, so that you're really trying to change people's behavior at the same time as make health care more available to them. Exactly. I mean, we didn't want to just, you know, I think health care is not free. It's not free for anybody. 
And so the idea was to create a program that invokes some personal responsibility. By paying for your services, you're paying on a monthly basis, and we also built in those incentives to help you focus on your preventative health care. Is there any part of this plan that helps or encourages people to establish um, a relationship with a primary care provider? It does, and, you know, we, we're lucky. We have two private health plans that are offering the health, Healthy Indiana plan. We've got the Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield product, and we also have the MD Wise with the MeriChoice product. And both of them have chosen two different models. In the MD Wise product, um, the individuals are required to, to have a relationship with the primary care doctor. And then in the Anthem plan, it's more probably a little similar to a PPO plan where you've got a primary care provider, but you also have access, free access to specialists. You're not required to have a referral. In one of my incarnations, I, I did some work in HR, so I am conversant in, in this, but I wonder how conversant some of the folks that you're trying to help are. Is there a training um, opportunity to really educate folks about the ins and outs and help them make the wisest choices possible, uh, perhaps between the two plans that you mentioned? Sure. Um, we do, and I think we recognize that from the beginning. I think even the concept of a high-deductible health plan can be confusing to folks, and so we are very much aware of that and have a number of mechanisms in place. One of the things that we have is the, the HIP line, which is 1-877-GET-HIP-9, and you, know, you can call that number for any type of information about HIP, anything from an application, but they also help um, individuals select the type of plan, so they'll go over types of plans and the differences between the two plans. And then once you're a member, once you've chosen the plans, plans do a lot of member outreach. They do phone calls. They hold workshops. There's a lot of materials that are mailed out. And again, they also have phone numbers that people can call to get more information. How's the uh, sign-up going so far? Well, the sign-up has been fabulous. We are up to almost 8,000 um, fully eligible individuals with an, another five to 6,000 that have been deemed eligible that we're just waiting for them to make their first contribution. And we've had over 45,000 applications. So we're very excited about, um, about the response, and I think it speaks to the great demand and the great need for health insurance out there for Hoosiers. How, how's this program funded? This is funded through, it's funded through the Medicaid program, and the Medicaid program is funded through both state and federal dollars. Mm-hmm. So the state has, um, obtains their money through the increase in the cigarette um, tax that uh, became effective in July of 2007. Okay. Um, I want to remind our listeners that we're talking the first half of the program today with Seema Verma, who is uh, involved with the Indiana. She's one of the developers of the Indiana Healthy or the Healthy Indiana Plan. Uh, if you have questions or comments, please phone us at eight five five zero eight one one or eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, or you can send your email to noon at indiana dot edu. Um, how are pharmaceuticals treated? Can people get low-cost drugs on the plan? Absolutely. One of the things that we have in the program, though, is that it is a generic-only drug. If there's not a generic available, then, of course, um, the brand name will be covered. But, again, this is part of an an effort to make the program affordable and to cover as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. Have you had any assistance from uh, any of the pharmaceutical companies with this program? I think the pharmaceutical companies have been um, have offered to help us with the outreach. A lot of them have <clears throat> outreach programs to low income uninsured, so they've said, "Hey, we're going to be out there. We're happy to promote the um, HIP plan as well." All right, Seema, we have our first phone call of the day. So Kimberly wants to ask you a question. Kimberly, uh, yes, I have a question regarding the eligibility. Um, the fact that individuals can't have insurance for six months prior to um, applying for HIP. Yes. Um, my concern is, as a self-employed business owner, a lot of us try to get, um, you know, basically emergency insurance in case something should happen. And I, I, I have a problem with um, HIP having that that certain criteria for eligibility because, to me, it kind of sh- it kind of promotes an irresponsibility on behalf of self-employed business owners, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, have you guys had any other concerns regarding that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that is certainly a concern, and I can tell you from, from our standpoint, let me give you a little bit of background to explain why that was put in there. <clears throat> As you know, the Indiana legislature raised the cigarette tax by 44 cents. 
Um, and when Governor Daniels came out with this program, he left it to the legislature to increase the cigarette tax to any level that, that they would have wanted. So with the level that they did, which is the 44 cents, and about 35 cents of that goes to, 34 cents, excuse me, goes to the Healthy Indiana Plan, we have a limited, limited amount of funding. So over the four year, or over the five years, the next five years, we expect to cover between 120 and 130,000 Hoosiers. Our goal with the program is, obviously, this isn't going to cover everybody that needs health insurance, and we recognize that we were going to be making choices about who we cover. Um, one of our concerns was that we didn't want businesses or individuals to drop their current health insurance. That's a phenomenon called crowd out, where people actually drop private health insurance and come into the public um, public sector. And this program was really intended to be for folks that do not have any other options. So I think we recognize that that is going to leave a lot of people out, and I think that HIP is certainly not a panacea. It is um, one step in the right direction, but um, there are a lot of people that are not going to, are still not going to have relief um, through the Healthy Indiana Plan, and I think that there's an awareness of that and a, a commitment um, to, con- to con- keep considering other options. Okay, thanks. All right, Kimberly, thanks for the call. And we have another caller. It's uh, Gemma. Gemma? Hi there. Um, uh, one of these things, uh, it's one of these things, I think, where the government seems to think, the local government, the state government, seems to think that there are a group of people out, out there, the ones that don't have health insurance already, that don't have the means at all to pay uh, a retainer fee to a lawyer to defend themselves in any way, uh, the ones that end up on probation paying a lot of money uh, that they don't have, the mistake is to think that those people can even ever save $1,000. $1,000 doesn't seem very much, but they can't save it all. I would say that population doesn't have a savings account at all. Mm-hmm. Um, paying for children's clothes and all that comes much you know, sooner, um, besides anything foolish that people might pay for. And I think the people that you're going to end up having are people that say, hey, this is a cheaper program for me than getting Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, and they're going to switch. Well, They're going to risk it for six months and switch. And I, I worry about that. I mean, the volunteers and medicine people have created an influx of applications for you because in order to – they tell you, at least – that in order to apply for them, you have to apply for HIP. And so I think a lot of those people don't question, and they go ahead and do it. So anyway, these are my concerns. I, I don't think anybody can pay or can save that much that actually doesn't have insurance. Well, and, I, and I would agree. I mean, I think that that was one of our concerns as well, that $1,100 could be for some families or for some individuals cost prohibitive. And the way that this is designed is that you don't have to put in $1,100. It's a sliding scale depending on where you fall. So some people don't make any contributions, and some people um, have to make the full $1,100. But those are for people, obviously, that are at higher levels of poverty. So if you're making more money, you're going to contribute more. The contributions slide between 2 and 5% of income. So depending on where you are, you would put 2%. 3% all the way up to 5%. And then what happens is, let's say you're putting in 2% of your salary, and that's only $200 a year. The state actually steps in and subsidizes the rest of your power account all the way up to the $1,100. Okay. okay. Thank you. All right, Bye. Gemma. Thanks for the call. And we, uh, you're, you're very popular today, Seema. We have another caller. It's <laughs> Laura. Laura, go ahead. Hi. Um, when I first heard about the HIP plan, it... I remember it being a first-come, first-served basis for applicants, and I've wondered if you have all the applicants you can take for the year or if you're still taking applicants. We are still taking applications. The way our, our federal waiver works is that we have a cap on the number of adults that we can take without children. So adults without children, we're going to take about 34,000, and we are not up to that cap right now. So. The door is open, and if you want to sign up, the, you know we're we're ready to receive your application. Are you taking applicants 
who are adults with children? Yes, yes. And there's there's not that cap. There's not a hard cap on that. We'll take as many people as we can, or as many parents as we can, until we run out of money. Okay. Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot for the call. Um, Seema, we have probably about five more minutes with you. So I wanted to, to sort of go back to maybe the beginning of how how one would um, would apply for the program and what, what someone could expect. And, and we're talking about uh, to be eligible, you have to be at 200 percent or below the poverty line. Is that correct? Exactly. And what, what is that in real dollars in Indiana? For a family of four, that is about forty thousand a year. For a family of four, for an individual, that's about twenty thousand dollars a year. Okay, so you've got somebody out there listening has a family of four and they make under forty thousand dollars a year. So, what's their first step to get hooked up with uh, HIP? What you can do there's a number of enrollment centers, and you can also call the one eight seven seven get HIP nine phone number. And they can tell you the locations. Um, we also have the applications online. You can download an application, fill it out, and it'll tell you where to mail it into. Okay. And they have to be, again, they have, have to have not had insurance for the last six months? Exactly. And they also cannot have access to employer-sponsored health insurance. So if your um, employer is offering you a plan, then you would not qualify for HIP. Okay. Now, are, is there a way to uh, have... If you work part-time or you work with an employer that doesn't offer a program, um, is there a way to get payroll deduction? I was going to ask that, too. Yes, there is. Um, The HIP plan, both um, Anthem and MDYs with the Mayor's Choice, do offer um, payroll deduction, and and the HIP plan also allows employers to help with their their employees' contributions, and they can pay up to 50% of the required contribution. Okay, and and then for the... um, for the deductible, the eleven hundred dollar deductible, does that have to be in the, um, you know, in the bank before you get started, or could that be if you're in a payroll deduction plan? Could that just continue yeah, to build? You, you can start right away, and the way it works is that the state makes its contribution right up front, and then the insurance companies actually step in and sort of fill that gap. So you get services right away, and it's almost like you're you're paying over the 12 months, but we'll go ahead and pay the doctors and we'll sort of front that money um, so that you don't have to worry about that gap. Okay. So what's, uh, what's been your mo- the most frequently asked question or the most misunderstood part of this program as you've moved forward? I think, um, you know, the, the frequently asked question is really just how do I get onto the program and understanding the, the rules around the program in terms of, you know, the six months, and I think that was brought up today, or, or having employer-sponsored health insurance. There's been a lot of interest, and people are really just anxious to figure out how they can apply and how they can get on. Do you sense that, uh, that the there's a goal within state government to – um, flesh this out more completely so more people are able to take care of this or take advantage, rather, of this or a, a different program? Yeah, I mean, I think that HIP is definitely a step in the right direction, and, and health care for the uninsured is an agenda item, I think, nationally. I mean, we're seeing that being discussed with all the presidential um, with folks that are running for president. So really this has become, it's not really only a state issue, but it's a national issue as well. We have over 44 million uninsured in the nation, and I think states can only go so far, and we also need to figure out what type of a federal solution so is, is there is there a kind of a wait-and-see attitude perhaps, and let's see what the federal government is going to do, and we'll kind of react to that? You know, we continue. I think we're always looking for opportunities. We're always looking at what other states are doing. Really, I think at the end of the day, what this comes down to is funding. There's a lot, a lot of different options, but how does, how does, how does a state finance um, additional assistance programs? Mm-hmm. It's a, this whole issue of health care, and you know, we're going to discuss it more with, with Rob Stone in the second half of the program, too. Um, it's it is a huge national issue, and it's also it's very complex. And mm-hmm. it seems as if you know we we have a, in Bloomington. I'm sure you're aware we have a, a local um, solution, not a total solution, obviously, but step in the right direction with the Volunteers in Medicine Clinic. And of course, the state now has HIP, and you're trying to work on that. And then the federal government is stepping in. I mean, do you have sort of a you know? Do you have a vision for what we need to do overall to try to, to make sure that these 44 million uninsured people have some sort of health care? 
think we need to, you know, there's a lot, so many different options, and I think that what we need to combine is for, for some individuals, especially for people that are below 200% of poverty, there really doesn't, to me, I don't think that those folks are going to be able to afford um, a $10,000 a year plan or a $12,000 a year plan. So, you know, you have to sort of look at solutions almost in a piecemeal where you're looking at the, the population and then figuring out what works best for them. I think for other groups below 200% of poverty, we need to figure out how can we make it more affordable for people. And looking at the solution, I don't think there's a, you know, one single way to approach the problem. You've got to look at, you've got to address access to health care, but you've also got to address the cost of health care because we can hand out health insurance cards to people, but if the cost is so high, who's going to pay for that? Mm-hmm. And then the other piece of that is quality. I mean, again, if we hand out health insurance and we figure out ways of lowering costs, what are we doing to the quality? So really looking at this problem requires taking a look at that triangle and balancing cost, quality, and access together. So, um, you know, I can't think of a magic bullet. I know people will talk about single payer as the panacea, but you look at what other countries that have um, have implemented that type of a plan, they've had many other types of problems. And I think you also have to look at our, our people and, and the foundation of America and what we're built on, which is a, is a private health care system. So I think that um, there's no easy answer, I guess. <laughs> yeah, if there was an easy answer, we'd, somebody would have figured it out exactly. by now, I'm sure. All right. I think we're, we're out of time for this first half of the program. Seema, do you have any, any last points you'd like to make? Well, I'm glad that we're talking about it, and I, and I thank you and your colleagues for, for putting this on today and to continue to raise the issue. Absolutely. Well, Seema Verma, thank you very much for being here with us today. Um, Seema is, uh, the, the, she is with her own consulting company, Seema Verma Consulting, and in her consulting role, she's focused on government health care, including helping Indiana develop the Healthy Indiana Plan. Thanks very much for being here with us thank today. Thank you. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info If you're a person on the go, you can take WFIU programs with you. We're podcasting. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer. Listen anytime from your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game musical mini quiz and movie play and opera reviews. You can find out how with a visit to our website at wfiu.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael, and we have Rob Stone. Afternoon. I would say joining Doctor, us, Doctor, Doctor Rob Stone. I would say joining us in the studio, but you've been here the whole first half of the program. Um, if you have questions or comments, please phone us at eight five five zero eight one one or eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, or send your email to noon at indiana edu and. Dr. Rob Stone will be talking with us about, you know, healthcare issues. He's the director of Hoosiers for a Common Sense Plan and Physicians for a National Health Program. He's the state coordinator for that organization. So you heard the first half of the program, Seema Verma, who's helped the state put together the, the Healthy Indiana Plan. Uh, give us some comments on what you heard. Okay. Uh, I've not I've not met this woman before, although I've read just a little bit of, of some of her writing, and you know she does a good job, I think, of explaining this program, which is which is a, a complicated plan. Um, but the most important step, the most important thing about it, is she says it's a it's a it's one step in the right direction, and with that, I am in total agreement with her. Uh, I know a few people uh, who have gotten onto the Healthy Indiana Plan, and for them, it's been a godsend. Uh, you know, it has 
lifted that cloud because people without insurance, they just live under this cloud of fear. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're just so afraid, particularly people who, ha- who are uninsured because they have a pre-existing condition. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Healthy Indiana Plan takes people with pre-existing conditions. So that's a, a wonderful thing for them. I think that you know when when you asked her you know where do we go from here and and, and she was pretty noncommittal and uh, and vague um, that speaks to to my concerns about the healthy Indiana plan when I speak to when I spoke this last year to people in the Indiana legislature of course they were really distracted by property taxes and it was a short mm-hmm. session mm-hmm. but People would some legislators would sometimes say, "Well, you know, we've done health care now, um. and uh, <laughs> uh, and so you know this is not an ending point. You know, if you look at uh, the right now, she said that they've got eight thousand, almost eight thousand people who are actually signed up, and another five to six thousand who've been made eligible. So, you know, we're talking thirteen, fourteen thousand. Um, even when the program reaches its maximum, which uh, they're projecting that it might cover, she said 120 to 130,000. Other estimates are a little lower than that. But of course, it depends on how much Hoosiers keep smoking uh, to fund it. But um, so if, if you figure it's going to cover you know, a little over 100,000 people eventually and it's um, you know, a, a fraction of the way to that, and then we understand right now that there's somewhere between seven hundred fifty and eight hundred thousand um, uninsured Hoosiers today in the state. So, at its best, this program may cover one in seven of the uninsured uh, if the number of uninsured doesn't keep rising. So, mm. um, you know, it would be way. Way too strong to call it a drop in the bucket, but I think you know, as she characterized it, one step in the right direction is is true. And but you know, we we can't just kind of sit back and pat ourselves on the back, saying that okay, now we've done health care. Mm-hmm. In Monroe County, the the area that you deal with primarily, um, about how many people do you think would be eligible for this kind of program? Ballpark. Hmm, that's a good question. The, the um, Volunteers in Medicine Clinic, which um, I'm a, a participant in, I volunteer there. And, and before that, uh, the Volunteers in Medicine Clinic used to be known as the CHAP program, the Community Health, a- Community Health Access Program. And I was the medical director of that for its last couple of years of existence. And I think we generally figured that um, the CHAP program reached maybe one-tenth of the eligible people in Monroe and Owen counties, and the volunteer, and all the part of the problem there was just a, a matter of uh, you know manpower, mm-hmm. and so the volunteers in medicine clinic is is you know the new idea to try to get more more help for uh, more staffing, more resources, but volunteers in medicine, uh, you know, I don't have the the up recent data on how well they're doing, but uh, you know, they've done a fabulous job, but they have not gone way beyond the amount that CHAP was covering and, uh, and they hope to and plan to and they're moving in the right direction again. But uh, still, I mean, I think we're, we're really talking about uh, lots and lots of people who are really not being reached by these kind of efforts. All right. Our phone number is 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Uh, Dr. Rob Stone, a Bloomington physician, is here with us and we're talking about uh, health care issues. Rob, you've worked a long time with this population in, in many different roles and, and, you know, it's one thing to talk about copays and deductibles and spending accounts and all those things. But I wonder if you have um, maybe from some of your work an example or a story that you could share that um, is a good illustration of the need for this kind of program and and why it's become your passion. Well, I've worked for the last 25 years in the emergency room at Bloomington Hospital. And I also work some uh, occasionally at other hospitals around the state uh, in Bedford and Martinsville and Seymour. And so everywhere I go, the the problem is the same. Uh, The emergency room is part of the safety net. Uh And the safety net is, well, the reason they call it a net is because it's full of holes. Uh Uh, You know, we we have this safety net, which 
is stretched very thin right now. Uh, the ERs are, you know, kind of nationally um, always part of the safety net, and uh, then things like the Volunteers in Medicine Clinic and um, and other kind of community health centers, federally supported community health centers, and things like that are another part of the safety net. And it's and it's you know it's kind of crazy, and it's it, it's a complicated patchwork quilt. When I think about um, you know. My experience, I mean, I just see it all the time. I see it on a almost daily basis. Uh, well, I should say every shift I work, I see it. And I see people who, who bargain with me and say, okay, but do we have to get an x-ray? You know, I mean, I've seen people who, mm-hmm. who you know, s- fell and sprained and, and messed up their ankle. And because they didn't have insurance, they didn't come in. And then they come in a couple days later and it's big and swollen and purple and they can't put any weight on it now. And, and they say, and I, and they say, Doc, what do you think? And I say, well, you know, it, it sure could be broken. It looks bad. We need to get an x-ray. And they say, oh, oh, no. I mean, I was afraid to come in here. I was afraid you were going to say an x-ray. And I say, oh, you know, I can't. I can't help you without getting an x-ray on this thing. And so we get the x-ray and we see now that it's it's not only broken but it looks like the bones have shifted a little bit. And if they'd come in right away, they probably could have just gotten a cast on it. But now it looks like what it really needs is a couple screws put in it and that means surgery. And, you know, you get a you, you get kind of surgery like that even if you're just in the hospital overnight. The bill's over $10,000 before you know it. Mm-hmm. So what happens to somebody – like that? I mean, they either go without treatment or they just pay for the rest of their lives? Or they go bankrupt, uh-huh. of course. Uh, and, you know, medical illness and medical bills is the number one cause of personal bankruptcy. It's, it's really tough. And, you know, I, 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 see it, I see people, you know, further down the line, you know, who've got this really rotten bad ankle and uh-huh. how can they work now? Yeah. You know, their, their, their options are limited. It, you know, it can lead to uh, financial ruin. It can can lead to the ruin of your life uh, in so many different ways. And it, and it is a, a tragedy that is, is just all too real. We have a phone call. Let's go to Valerie on the phone. Valerie? Um, yeah, hi. hi. First of all, I'd like to thank Dr. Stone. I understand I've been around Bloomington long enough to know that he's truly dedicated to finding a solution uh, nationally to this health care problem. Um, personally, and I think he agrees with me that, you know, we're only going to find a solution when we get the word insurance out of the formula, but um, I am eligible for volunteers in medicine, and a previous caller mentioned something which I'm not sure is true. Um, I did just call them for clarification. I believe she said in order to apply for volunteers in medicine, you have to submit an application for the HIP program. I, I don't think that that is the case. Um, Anyway, I'm one of those people that, you know, without volunteers in medicine or what used to be CHAPS would have absolutely no access to health care. I had to leave a full-time job at IU, ironically due to health problems, and since then I've had no insurance. And I looked into the HIP program, and, you know, they said, hello? Yeah, Go we're ahead. here. Yeah, we're getting a thunderstorm here. I better make this quick. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd have to pay $40 a month. Well, that sounds like a good deal, but with the rising gas and food prices and all that, I, I really can't afford $40 a month. So, uh, you know, thank thank uh, the Lord for volunteers in medicine. Um, I guess that's really my only comment. That, yeah, I th- um, yeah, I think you know, that- just a general comment. I'll hang up now. Okay. Thanks, Valerie. I mean, what Valerie's talking about is uh, those kind of choices that people have to make. You know, do you pay $40 a month for health care or do you pay $40 a month for the food you need or the transportation you need or the child care you need or the- to heat your house? I mean, those mm-hmm. are the – kinds of choices that people have to make. One of the scariest things for me, I mean, I, I keep coming back to the word squeeze. I think people are just getting squeezed. And, you know, we've seen the number of uninsured rising over the last few years and the economy has been good. And now, as, as the economy uh, it seems to be uh, sputtering, we're going to just see this problem so aggravated, and it's it's really frightening. And if you if you look at you know health insurance premiums over since two thousand, from two thousand to two thousand six, health insurance premiums rose eighty seven percent, and at the same time, uh, wages and uh, the cost of living were a, fr- a, tr- a fraction of that. So health insurance premiums have been going up way faster than wages have been going up, 
And so that's put people on the squeeze. Again, that's while the economy was good. And now, as she's, you know, she mentioned, you know, gas prices are going up, food prices are going up. How can people keep affording the premiums and how can employers you know, keep being able to offer an affordable program? It's tough. Yeah, and that was my follow-up question, Rob. I'm sure you've done research on this. How, how is the percentage that the employer offering changed over time? Mm-hmm. Well, we see a couple different things happening there. Nationally, we saw that uh, I think in around 2002, the number of people covered by um, employer-based plans in the country is about 65 percent and that's dipped down into the 50s now and the projections are that in Indiana within a few years uh, and maybe a very few years that less than 50 percent of people in Indiana will be covered who are by employer-based plans because employers are finding it increasingly unaffordable to, to offer plans. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a growing problem and again, it, we saw that when the economy was good, we're going to see it even more when the economy is bad. And- and I can tell you, as somebody with an employer-based plan, that the plan changes every year now yes. as, as companies attempt to figure out how they can continue to offer and pay, mm-hmm. uh, you know, offer some sort of a plan that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when the plans change, this isn't so much of a problem in Bloomington, but in some of the other towns where people listen uh, to this show, we have uh, you know multiple different uh, hospitals and clinics and things like that. So if your insurance plan changes, you may have to change doctors, and that's mm-hmm. a real hassle. Mm-hmm. All right, we have a phone call. Bob, go ahead. Hi, uh, Dr. Stone, could you speak to the limitations of the um, presidential candidates' health care plans? Oh, that's one of my favorite questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, the big limitation is that I think if you look at all three candidates, and, and, and I'm going to only talk then, of course, about the major candidates. Um, if you look at all three candidates, the way they have really framed this is what's the best way to repair our broken for-profit insurance industry-based system? That's really what they're all talking about. Uh, and I would really reframe that to say what's the best way to replace our broken for-profit insurance industry plan? Uh, Valerie mentioned something about getting the word insurance out of it because I think what we really need is health care, not necessarily health insurance. And so that's that's really what, what, what I'm talking about. But um, – you know, just to very briefly summarize my take on on, on, the, on the presidential candidates, and uh, Bob and Mary Catherine cut me off if I get too long-winded here. You know, <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, we will. Yeah. Uh, you know, the McCain plan it, you, you can deal with fairly quickly because um, for, for John McCain, health care is not a very important priority. Uh, his website has a very limited amount of material on on, on health care. He's really much more interested in other issues. Um, and that's okay, but I think we need to understand. You know, he made a major policy address uh, on his health on his health care plan on four twenty nine on April twenty ninth, and he didn't really add much to what he had before. And you know, and basically, his plan calls for some changes in the tax laws to take away the incentive for insurers to cover, uh, excuse me, for employers to cover their uh, employees, and instead put the onus on individuals and then give people a tax credit. It's a similar idea to what President Bush proposed in his State of the Union address in 2003, give a tax credit, $2,500 for an individual or $5,000 for a family, and allow them to use that to pay for their health insurance premiums. And keeping in mind that the average family of four in the United States pays, if they're paying their whole premium themselves, pays about $12,000 a year or $1,000 a month. Um, and uh, so to, to summarize the, the Bush-McCain plan, I can only go to Stephen Colbert uh, because he said it so elegantly. Uh, I'm not going to do the Stephen Colbert voice, but those of you who've heard him uh, can imagine it. It's so simple. Most people who can't afford health insurance are also too poor to owe taxes. But if you give them a deduction from the taxes they don't owe, they can use the money they're not getting back to buy the health care they can't afford. Um, It's not going to get us where we need to go. Okay. So um, Clinton and Obama. Now, they've made a lot of uh, smoke and fire about the differences between their plans and I actually think that there are more similarities than differences. 
Actually, I want to give a little credit to John Edwards because he was really the first major candidate who pushed the health care agenda forward. He put forward his plan first. And interestingly enough, his plan, Clinton's plan and Obama's plan, were all written primarily by the same guy, a guy named Jacob Hacker, who's an economist at Yale, health economist at Yale. So Hacker's plan was adapted very closely by Edwards, Hillary Clinton, kept almost all of it and mostly changed some names. Barack Obama changed it a little bit more um, to um, eliminate some of the health care mandates. They're called mandating individuals to buy care like they've done in Massachusetts uh, as an experiment here in the last year. Um, but all their plans basically keep the the Anthem Well points, the United Healthcare's, the Humana's, the, the big, the gigantic um, for-profit insurance industry as a big part of the solution. And I think they're a big part of the problem. And I think we need to find ways to change that. All right. How realistic is it, though, to expect to dismantle uh, behemoth organizations that are, in fact, money-making and do employ a lot of people? I mean, I think that that would be a, a real... Um, well, challenge, I mm-hmm. think, is about the most euphemistic way I can ask that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and I agree completely, and I think this is one of the, the biggest issues. I, my understanding is that uh, that Anthem, or WellPoint, is actually the corporate name, which is headquartered here in, right. in, in Indianapolis, employs something like seven or 8,000 people in mm-hmm. the state. And Not so, to mention they have shareholders. And they have shareholders, yes, indeed. Now, the insurance companies are facing a very difficult situation right now. They've been kind of the darlings of Wall Street for the last um, 10 or 15 years, and uh, the stock prices have gone up, and now we're seeing the insurance company stock prices go down because people are realizing that their business model is is unfortunately kind of going over a cliff because, you know, we think about the number of uninsured going up and that's a problem for all of us as a nation, but it's also a very big problem for the insurance industry because they've been losing customers mm-hmm. because they've been kind of pricing themselves out of existence. There have been some – if you read some of the stock analysts talking about uh, Anthem Well Point and talking about United Health, they're saying that um, perhaps the only really way that uh, the the big private insurance companies can can survive is with a, uh, a Hillary Clinton type plan, which would mandate everyone to buy uh, private health insurance if they aren't covered by some other plan. Uh, so it's really interesting. There was an interesting piece in the New York Times about a week and a half ago in the business section talking about how um, uh, the plans like the Democratic candidates, particularly Clinton, are talking about might actually be the Hail Mary that would save the private insurance industry. Fascinating. But I think really uh, you know, big business is coming to the conclusion that we've got to find the most efficient way to do it and maybe removing the middleman um, uh, or not removing the middleman but uh, cutting out a lot of the waste and inefficiency because we see you know, companies uh, like Anthem WellPoint run, depending on how you do the accounting, 20 to 30 percent overhead. That includes their profits and, of course, their incredible executive salaries with the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the former CEO of Anthem having gotten a $42.5 million dollar bonus in 2003. So those companies run pretty high overhead. Medicare, on the other hand, uh, you know, the big bad government bureaucracy runs about 3.1% overhead. And so there are some differences there. What we really call for, uh, what I advocate is that we use the 40-year experience we have with Medicare. It's not you know some kind of uh, you know new idea, and we simply start expanding that. You know, right now, Medicare is for everybody age sixty five and above, uh, and some disabled folks. And we expand that downward uh, until we've got everybody covered and use that experience at three point one percent overhead. Uh, we've got callers waiting, but just quickly, I think to understand where we're going, we need to understand where we came from. Could you talk about the genesis of employer based health plans and and for profit? Oh, <laughs> he's looking at his watch. Oh, for profit. <laughs> insurance providers working together. Okay. You know, I think it's really important to understand, you know, we're the only country in the world that has this kind of a system with for-profit insurance. There are a lot of the European countries have private insurance, but it's almost all exclusively not for profit. And really, the growth of, of big for-profit insurance companies is a very new phenomenon in this country. It really started in the mid-90s. It came out of managed care, which was part of, the, you know, the Clinton health plan, which was 
legislatively a disaster in 93, 94. But the ideas of the Clinton Health Plan actually took hold in a lot of ways, particularly this idea called managed care that a lot of listeners have heard about. And managed care was an attempt to apply market forces to this health care issue and to try to bring costs down because we're always trying to control costs. Uh, but it led to a lot of consolidation in healthcare. So we saw doctors go from small groups to large groups. We saw hospitals go from individual hospitals to big chains. And we saw insurance companies. Little Blue Cross Blue Shield of Indiana was a small state-based, not-for-profit healthcare company. They went to Wall Street, raised money. They demutualized. And they used the money they raised from Wall Street for mergers and acquisitions until they merged and merged and finally merged with Blue Cross of California, known as WellPoint, and became the largest insurance company in the United States. But the point I'm making is this is a relatively new thing. It's about a 15-year experience with really huge national for-profit health insurance companies. All right. That's a very good explanation in a short period of time. Nicely we have, done. We have three callers who are waiting. Let's go to Daryl first. Daryl? Uh, hi. Thanks a lot. Sure. Uh, Rob, first I want to congratulate you on the wonderful work you're doing. Thank you. Uh, my question or comment, I guess, is that why is it that the media and the politicians seem so reluctant to seriously look at and discuss the various European national health care programs that exist that have been in place. I think Britain's program has been in place since the end of the Second World War, and uh, they love their, their system. Uh, when the people are talking about this, it seems like no one's ever heard of the idea of universal health care uh, and yet there are examples of it in all over Europe and the Far East. How do you account for that? Well, Daryl, I, I appreciate your call. And, of course, um, the media is uh, putting me on today, so that's a good thing. Uh, so I don't want to diss all the media. But, um, yeah, the, the point is this is not some kind of new idea. You're right uh, that England uh, got a national health insurance plan right after the war. You can go back to Germany and I think 1883 had universal health care with a national plan. So these ideas have been around for quite a while. When we went to Medicare, uh, when we founded Medicare and Medicaid in the mid-60s was the same time that the Canadians built their system, which is basically like our Medicare system and spread it, except for it covers everybody with uh, actually fewer copays and deductibles than our Medicare. So it, 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 these ideas have been out there. But uh, as Mary Catherine pointed out, you know, there's a lot of resistance. Uh, and part of it is because there are some powerful forces who are worried about losing money. All right. Thanks for that answer. And we'll go next to Kathleen. Hello, Kathleen. Hello. Good afternoon, and thank you, Dr. Rob Stone, for the wonderful work you do. Um, I would just like to comment that uh, Price, uh, which was con referred to by your first guest, does not guarantee uh, value or quality of care. Mm -hmm. Also... <clears throat> For years, uh, I asked if there was some way to justify or explain the cost of a hospital room for one day, and those questions have never been answered to my satisfaction. Um, I think that cost is not the same as what we are charged, and so I know that there has to be a profit along the way. But when a hospital expands and becomes so large that it can't afford to build, um, what are the answers for that and the repercussions on those of us who need care? Thank you, Kathleen. Uh, so I know that people are listening in Terre Haute today since you've called in. <laughs> the difference between costs and charges is one of the most confusing things because the charges for, th for health care things bear no relationship to the costs. And it's because we have this crazy patchwork quilt of different systems and private insurance and public insurance, and everybody's trying to shift the costs around. And, you know, I, I work in the ER, so uh, I see lots of people who have no money to pay, uh, and I take care of all of them, of course. And so 
but I still got to, you know, put my kids through college uh, and make my house payments. So I got to charge somebody. So I try to get as much as I can out of the insured patients. And somehow in this crazy mess of things, the uninsured who pay their bills pay the highest prices. Mm -hmm. And that is just one of the most immoral and crazy things that happens. But nobody pays the fullest price except those uninsured people who don't have an insurance company bargaining a discount for them. And, And beyond that, it is beyond explanation. So a single-payer plan might take care of some of that. Would completely take care of that problem. There would be no more cost shifting. Thank you. It's a crazy world. Thank you. Here's an email that came in. Uh, Monroe County Commissioner District 2 candidate Mark Stoops has proposed a single-payer health care pool for all Monroe County. Is that a good idea? I think Mark's idea is going to be really interesting to discuss and flesh out and try to understand because it's the sort of creative thinking that that, that I I find exciting. Do I understand exactly how we could do that right now? No. Uh, Is it worth talking about? Yes. Um, Is there any model that we can look at? Yes, the state – excuse me, the city of San Francisco has a plan that they're moving forward with that I, I don't understand all the details on that yet. Uh, I've talked to uh, Mark Stoops a little bit about this, and we're planning to talk some more about it. Um, I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go to the phone, and we have Mark on the phone. Mark? Hi. Uh, this not is not a, Mark Stoops. Though. Yeah, this is, a, this is a different Mark. Thank you, though. And uh, Rob, I want to thank you so much for the good work that you've done uh, with uh, uh, the clinic and so forth and um, what you're uh, working towards nationally. Uh, and that comes around to something that I heard part of this morning as I was driving into work, and maybe I caught I didn't catch the entire story, but I thought there was a GAO report, federal GAO report that came out yesterday or day before with respect to the cost of universal care. And um, maybe I didn't catch all of that, but I'm wondering if uh, if that is in fact the case because it was very favorable, it sounded to me. Uh, if you were aware of that or if this was uh, something I just got part of, and I will get off the phone and, and listen to your comments and, and the radio. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Just just briefly, I only heard parts of that too, and I and I read a little bit about that just in getting ready for this. It's uh, there's a bipartisan bill in front of Congress called the Wyden-Bennett bill. Uh, Wyden is from Oregon, a Democrat, and Bennett is a Republican from Utah. And they, uh, I think it was actually the the uh, Congressional Budget Office, CBO rather than GAO, but one of those organizations did an analysis that said, yes, we could achieve universal coverage and it wouldn't break the bank. In fact, we could probably do it for what we're spending right now. And others, people from different angles have looked at that as well. This, this is an affordable... This can be done. It is affordable. All right. And with that, we are out of time. And, and Rob, I'm sure you'll come back. Gladly. She'll come back. This is a very complicated issue and one that we can talk about. Uh, and it's ever-changing, too. Absolutely. And let me just say that this is National Cover the Uninsured Week. Huh. Oh, yeah, and that's part of the reason why we're here. Perfect timing. All right. I'd like to thank Rob Stone for being here with us today. And thank Mary Catherine Carmichael for being here, as well as producer Catherine Hageman and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.